ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 beautiful people, how's it going? Hope you are all doing well wherever you are in the world. And as you can tell, the recording of this is not as good as normal. This is because I'm recording it on my mobile phone. I'm currently sitting at the top of a mountain in a place called Cara di Santa Maria. I think that's how you pronounce it. But it is about one hour out of central Barcelona. I'm in a place in the mountains. I've come away for a week just to get away. I had a looked online I saw some cheap flights and I thought why not let's jump on the flight get away for a week I've got some stuff pro- projects that I want and I'm going to be working on so I thought why not get away seclude myself away from the bubble of society so to say do some yoga immerse myself in some meditation practices and things and work on a few of the some of the cool projects that I'm working on and edit some podcasts and things so I'm in a place like I said that is about an hour out of Barcelona. I'm currently sitting on a mountain top. I've just went for a hike. It's a really beautiful day. It's about 20 degrees. So good to get away from the cold within the UK. It really is cold at the minute in the UK. It's starting to get drop below minus on a few days. But today in Barcelona, it's about 20 degrees. It's absolutely stunning. I know I keep saying that you should honour the cycles, guys, within your body. But if you get a chance to get away in the weather, you've got to take it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, this week on the podcast is a conversation I did from my time at the Britain Convention. It's with a guy called Philip Wolfson. Really was an interesting conversation, this one. This was another conversation that was spur of the moment. Didn't know much about the guy. Tried to do some research on him. Found out that he had never done a podcast before. But I did find some an interesting article that he wrote a while ago. How he said that he was a Buddhist for over 30 years. He's somebody who was interested in psychedelics. It's very rare that you come across a but someone who was interested in Buddhism. Who's also, also interested in psychedelics. And sort of speaks about it in a Western context. So I thought he's definitely an interesting guy. And somebody who needed to talk to. So I made it happen anyway. We sat down, we had this conversation, we talked about so much. As you will see, he really is an interesting guy. Um, he came actually came over to the Brayton Convention in the UK from, I think he said, from New York he's based in, I think he said. I might be wrong on that one. But he's from the US anyway. And we talked about so much stuff, we really did. We got into, obviously, the, we got really got into the thick of Buddhism, what Buddhism means to him and his journey through um practicing the art of buddhism the different forms of buddhism but it was more than that the conversation we obviously talked about some of the things that i'm working on and and he gave me some insights into them how he thinks sort of um judging people in society um our inner dialogues and inner conversations with ourselves we talked about we 
I can remember in this conversation we started diving into the blue light where people have experiences. I've had this, Philip said he had it, where we have experiences of the blue light. What is that experience? We also I also asked him the question about how when we do have these experiences of the mystical um can I, can it ever be too much for our bodies? And the answer that he gives us, I'm not going to spoil it, but the answer was really profound and really incredible. And I really do know you're going to love this conversation. Like I mentioned just before we dive in this one, like I mentioned last week, I'm currently I've, I now have the place for the Ascend Podcast Retreat. It's in a place in the south of France. I'll be speaking more upon that in the next couple of weeks. Like I said, I'm away at the moment, and I'm currently working on sort of. Um, putting the final touches in, 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 in the retreat so maybe in the next couple of weeks i'll be i'll be sort of putting it out there like i said there is a email opt-in on the ascend podcast website if you want to sign up for that you will be notified as soon as the retreat goes live currently there's only going to be 12 spots for this when it goes live i'd really love to see all you guys there. it was really cool i know we're going to have such a cool time some of the things that i'm already planning out in the meantime, though, if you can, find it in your heart, support the podcast through the Patreon page. It really is the best way to help me keep doing what I'm doing. Also have a one-off donation option as well. That is a great way. A lot of people love that option to just quickly sort of uh, ping over some money. The money for the podcast really does go a long way, guys. <laughs> I'm not I'm not paying for holidays, even though I'm on one now, sort of. But it's not paying for things like that, guys. It just helps me out. Puts a bit of petrol money in the tank when I'm traveling around. Helps with the maintenance of the website and other things. And it just helps me, to, it allows me, to freeze me up to keep doing what I'm doing. And just bringing you some interesting conversations anyway. So I love you all guys. And enjoy this conversation with Philip Wolfson. Peace out from the Barcelona mountains. And I will catch you next week. Peace out people. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It really is a pleasure to sit down and have a conversation with you. An area that I actually wanted to talk about, like I just mentioned before, I wanted to sort of dive into the, the background of Buddhism and how has that sort of played an important role in your life. But what was the what was the sort of the, the first thing that inspired you to be interested in Buddhism? Well, it goes back uh, a long way. I'm not a youngster anymore. So uh, first year of college, I was... Uh, 16 going on 17 in Boston at Brandeis and uh, I had a very avant-garde teacher who brought Alan Watts into us. This is 1960. So 1960s early for Alan Watts even and uh, Nature Man and Woman was uh, the book that we uh, were given and it was a wonderful read and as a naive human coming out of New York City and uh, in the McCarthy period, it was re- revelatory in the sense that uh, it posited a different kind of view of self than I had had. I grew up uh, a religious Jew. I had uh, been teaching Hebrew school. I grew up in New York City and uh, I had left that and uh, had a kind of personal revelation at 19 where I, I no longer was uh, God-abiding, and I had uh, come to a, 
a sense that um, what I was doing with God was internal, not uh, in an external relationship. And in that revelation, which was pre-Buddhist, when I was presented with uh, Alan Watts' book, uh, it solidified some of my sense that uh, really the place I was going to go in my life was internal to my own self-control, my own belief systems, my own communion with a deeper sense of uh, essence than I was getting by being in a God-fearing relationship uh, within the Jewish framework I grew up with in uh, a kind of fearful, uh, terrible God. Now, there's also a there are two gods in Judaism. There's also a god of love. But the god of love was often pushed aside by male authority figures. And I was growing up in a male authority uh, kind of ambience. And uh, that was uh, within the synagogue structure of my life where my grandfather or my father was a male domination so, uh, context. So having uh, that experience and being a new we minted on my own person in the world and trying to figure out who I was, leaving a very domineering, in many ways, oppressive family culture, um, coming to uh, a different sense of of uh, how to run your life and who you are was really moving. I didn't pick it up entirely at that point, but I was influenced deeply by it. And then... Uh, uh, much later, I started formalizing it. So I always kept a relationship to it in terms of noble truths, a, a minimal practice, some meditation. And then uh, if you, if we go on, I'm, the late, uh, the mid-1990s, I uh, got involved in Vajrayana and Northern Tier Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. What is it? Could you actually just try and just just to go there? Could you just sort of describe the? Is there much differences in the in the in those practices? Well, there or is the commonalities. There, there in in Buddhism, there are three major strands: Hinayana, which is also Theravada, and Buddhism, which is the southern tier and tends to be uh, very much involved with the national structures and is a formal uh, national kind of Buddhism, whether you're in Thailand or. You're in Sri Lanka or places like it. It becomes a state-adopted Buddhism with all the problems of uh, state-adopted Buddhisms and also the opportunities to support temples, practices, etc. But it also gets corrupted into the general uh, samsaric kind of uh, uh, world so that, you know, it becomes part of war, part of I'm better than you, religious warfare, and it's corrupted that way while it also retains a spiritual essence. So there's Southern Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, which is thriving, and then there's uh, Mahayana Buddhism, which goes to Zen, which is sort of middle tier, and uh, then and also very influential within China. And there's Northern Buddhism, which is uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. And Vajrayana takes from all three uh, but it has certain particular precepts that distinguish it. And there are, in general, there it's called three, the three turnings of the wheel. Uh, and the first turning is the sutra turning with the actual Buddha's uh, life transmitted orally and then written in scriptural form and elaborated upon so you don't really know entirely what the Buddha was about. 
Hmm. There's a, a wonderful re- reconstruction of that that uh, 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 a writer Stephen Batchelor has attempted to do a great book, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, in which he follows the path of the Buddha as much as he can physically and tries to derive a pragmatic Buddhism, which is free of beliefs. So Stephen's uh, effort in the world, his first major book was Buddhism Without Beliefs. So if you come to a pragmatic Buddhism, you're not really uh, uh, able to talk about the proof of reincarnation, for instance. And reincarnation is the central idea of any idea of, of Buddhism because it gives rise to the cycle of birth, rebirth, consciousness, and all the rest. So once you drop reincarnation and people like Stephen, who was a monk, and myself, who was not, and has never been able to do a notion of reincarnation uh, in which I have a belief in reincarnation. So if we drop the absolutes, which are assertions of beliefs rather than proofs of what we do know, they're not pragmatic, and you you adopt a pragmatic view of the Eightfold Path, I, I reworked it in my own uh, hubris-filled way as a the Tenfold Awakened Path because I thought it needed modernization. But in any event, if you try and derive Buddhism as a way of life and you drop from it, you know, things like afterlife, things like the absolute nature of Buddha nature inside us that uh, continues without relationship to the being itself, it's immortal, etc. There are a series, not many, of uh, beliefs that are asserted by each of those three tendencies uh, that uh, are not provable. And what they do is they remove a kind of immediacy of the of the work, so that the work of being becomes, uh, in a sense, I think, overly influenced by the business of where you're going and where you've been. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that in that sense, or or uh, passed over because there's a belief in the uh, absoluteness of Buddha nature. On the other hand, and I'm going on. If you want to interrupt me, no, it's good. It's a good information. So uh, if you if you really look at the notion of the bodhisattva, which is key to the second and third paths, the Mahayana and Vajrayana turning of the wheel, if you look at that notion, it's a conscious community notion. So when you take, for instance, the bodhisattva vow, what you're really saying is you're attached and connected in the world in such a way that personal salvation, nirvana, cannot occur for you because everyone else is suffering or many people are suffering and until the uh, the work of helping people not to suffer is successful then your own personal nirvana is just another dualistic kind of uh, experience so yes I'm better I'm good I've realized but the the bodhisattva idea is that you can't really do that because there's too much stuff to to do to help others to be connected and really too much stuff for your own liberation to be clear when you live in such complex society. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other deep aspect, which I think really pertains to psychedelics, is the notion of Buddha nature. But Buddha nature gets frozen as a concept 
and we all we say we all have Buddha nature, which I think is true, but it's hard to find in some people like Donald Trump or yeah. you know, a bunch, a lot, too many people. It'll be in there somewhere, hit away. Yeah, yeah, you don't see a relationship. Might, I was going to say I might have to give him some ayahuasca to get it out of him. <laughs> right, well, or ketamine like we do, or yeah, any of the drugs. Yeah. I mean, and we'll talk about why ketamine is really, I think, uh, of all of them, the best access point for that kind of sense of Buddha nature. So I don't say that as aficionado to yeah. ketamine. I say that as as I look at the signatures and all the experiences that I know of and do with people within a psychedelic framework that the ketamine experience brings us closest to looking at our essence quickest, okay? So the Buddha nature concept, if, to finish it up, yeah. If you, you take that and you say, what's our core essence? And you follow the Buddhist teaching and you say to yourself, the medicine is non-attachment. So people get confused and say the medicine is the method, which is meditation. But the method is designed to do one thing in its myriad formats because meditation is too constrained and to do it this way. And, and a lot of schools do that. But uh, if you really open the door uh, to non-attachment, it's that sense of uh, depth that one has. There are many words for it. Uh, in my training, it's Dzogchen or primordial awareness. But in, for instance, internal family systems, it's the self with a capital S. There are Christian ways of viewing it. But it's really that sense you have when you tune into yourself without thoughts, sensations, and perceptions. And it's come, it, you know, there's a classic kind of um, uh, uh, koan training that masters do where they send a student to uh, examine the origin of a thought. Where does that thought come from? And the student comes back again and again and say, I don't, I can't find it. I don't know. Go back and try again. And so that's a proof in the Mahayana system of the nature of uh, essence because you cannot locate the origin of a thought, sensation, perception. They arise and fall. They're part of the continuum, continuum of, of, exp of internal experience, external experience. So within that framework, uh, going into the psychedelic relationship that you first spoke about when, when I... When before I began this diatribe, yeah. um, the the essence of psychedelic experiences, no matter what, uh, are that once you pass through the psychological dimension, if you take mushrooms, psilocybin, generally the first period of time is a kind of scraping of the ego. It's a kind of, you know, where where have I screwed up? Who have I hurt? You know, where are the loose ends of my life? What have I done that I shouldn't have done? What, have, what do I need to do? And that goes on for, you know, a half hour, an hour. And then you are suddenly released as the medicine goes further into you, into a realm of experience. And that experience is without really ego. And the same might be true for LSD or 5-MeO is a quick blowout of all this relationship to this kind of realm and a sudden entry into the realm of formlessness. So if you take ketamine, that is a, a longer access point into the realm of formlessness. So that gives a teaching 
and a highlighting, a manifestation of, uh, of Buddha nature in a sense of what you have as your, ne- as your essence. And that I think when we come to talk about therapeutic values of medicines is uh, one of the main values that I'm trying to articulate and bring into a consciousness within the medical, within the uh, psychedelic, uh, psychotherapeutic uh, nexus. I love that, by the way, so much stuff there. Honestly, I could take this into so many different directions. But a question I actually have for you there that come to my mind is when you were speaking before about sort of getting beyond the layers of your own psychotherapy and then sort of getting beyond the getting beyond the ego to them deeper levels within within yourself, do you feel... A question I want to ask you is, have you ever questioned what is the ultimate goal of that? Like once you get beyond the ego, once you get beyond the self, sort of say, have you... I mean, is there an ultimate goal or is or is... Or is it not an ultimate goal? Well, I'm working hard on that. So for me personally, and I think in my work, there's a a feeling state I call clarity. And clarity is a a sense of uh, uh, not confused being in which there's a kind of sensation. I call it the blue light. Um, People experience it very differently. But it's a kind of ecstatic state which you don't want to be immodest about because that's not clarity. So clarity is an egoless state in which you function at a level in which your your sense of intuitive life is strong and your mind is uncluttered and not filled with obstacles and not filled with desire and greed and the next TV show and, you know, where you're screwing up at home. It's a it's a sense of, of um, uh, in a sense, emptiness but fullness in that choir, in that Buddhist strange thing that we do of, you know, emptiness and fullness. But uh, so I, my goal in my life is always to find clarity, and substances don't always bring that, but uh, that and meditation, etc., uh, and living life well and loving well. I think all contribute to what my best sense of what I enjoy, an ecstatic sense that comes out of clarity. So clarity is also entertaining because so much comes out of it. So my my goal personally is to be as clear and un, uh, 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 unmessed up by, you know, concerns that are, you know, silly or anxious or depressed or, or ego-driven. So clarity is about egolessness in a certain way. Uh, it's also about a strong sense of self. So you feel yourself in clarity as well. So so I think that's pretty much my goal. It's also wonderful to have fun. So I'm not trying to make this all uh, kind of uh, heavy duty. I mean, in clarity, one has fun. In clarity, one lives one's life in the Zen moment to moment of joy as much as that's possible and we all fail at that so I'm, I'm i'm always losing it but within the the buddhist framework particularly the vajrayana framework the tibetan framework or the northern tier framework the uh the ability to move into uh instant presence is another way of looking at clarity we have words for experiences that can't be spoken ineffability of course so in in that uh, instant presence as you become uh, convinced of that 
There are three parts to it. A lot of Advaita people do one or two parts. The Vajrayana tend to do three parts. So there's a classic teaching. Is first you have to have an experience of that sense of uh, a non-attachment of clarity. Uh, and once you have that experience, you have to have faith in it that it's useful. And the third part is you want to return to it and the faithfulness to it. You want that to be where you head. And so if I extrapolate that to the work I'm doing within the ketamine framework, I have a whole new thing about that in relationship to the ketamine things, which we can go into. Yeah, definitely. There's so much, honestly, like I said, there's there's so many uh, nuggets in that. A question I want to ask you on on one of the things that you said, and it's something that I've been trying to, st- I've been struggling with in my own life a lot, is the what you were speaking before, the dance between sort of play and, the, and sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but just sort of, what what word would you use? But the dance between sort of play and life and life life itself. You know, like the things that that life puts in front of you. The sort of the all the, the sort of the, the the contradictions the mind puts on, which you should be. You should be this. You should be doing the physical spiritual work. You need to go deeper into the spiritual work. But then at the same time, trying to balance the two things of the dance between play and the dance between the more sort of inner work. How, how have you any, have any thoughts on how to sort of how to manage that balance between them two worlds? Well, I, I don't think there's a split. I think the <clears throat> the inner world in its relationship to how we behave and how we take in is one and the same. It's all passing through consciousness, unconsciousness. It's all passing through a perceptual realm in which you're absorbing and giving off, and then you're also checking out what you do. I mean, we're we're action humans and action animals, and we have the ability to register the consequences of our actions on small scale or large scale. So I don't see a, a real split between that. I, I think the, the kind of sense of where Zen is a very uh, hospitable kind of way of thinking and being is that you are doing in a conscious way, you are being in a conscious way and doing and being while they're, they're, re, they're seem different, they're really related because if you're not watching, you're doing. And you're, if you're not doing and just being, then you're not an activist and you're not connected or you think you're not connected. So the great illusion in all of us is that we're not connected, that we're really individuals and, you know, we're not and we're completely dependent and interdependent and and we forget all that and that's why we make so many mistakes. That's why we think, you know, that fossil fuel burning is cool and let's drive our cars, even the best of us. Mm-hmm. I do have an electric car, but it takes a lot of energy to make an electric car. Yeah, so there's no escaping sinfulness within the framework of hurting the environment, right? Yeah, definitely. You you said something before which I thought was really powerful. You were speaking upon the the sense of beliefs and like the, the, the general overarching theme. What I got from you there is that Buddhism has this concept where, I mean, it's something that I live in my life as well. Is and correct us if I'm wrong here, but um, that not to come not be, to become too certain in who you think you are or the or the beliefs that you hold within okay. your in yeah. you, within yourself. Do you feel, is that the overarching theme that like you you well, sort of you know, it's, it's full of contradictions. So the, the Buddhism theme is uh, there is no intrinsic reality to your being. Right, there's no intrinsic essence. 
But that flies, that's confusing, and there are many other translations of it. It's confusing because without a sense of continuity or loss of memory uh, in an amnestic state or an Alzheimer's state, then there's no being of any consequence. So there is a, a flow, and I think one of the useful concepts is to think of your life as a dream that starts from conception and ends at cessation. And because there's really only continuity, we put in punctuation marks like for sleep or eating or, you know, this event or that event. But really there's, there is punctuation, but there are no periods. It's all, you know, dashes and dots and commas and, and, and we're in continuity constantly. So within that framework, uh, I think you, you have a different notion of how you, how you are and how you live your life. Yeah, I like that. It's a powerful point, by the way. Is there any is there any sort of practices in your life that you still sort of integrate on a regular basis from Buddhism now? Yeah, I'm a I'm what's called a Dzogchen in Tibetan, instant presence kind of practitioner. So even while we're talking, I'm watching. I've been a psychotherapist for fifty plus years, yeah. so I'm used to watching myself and being uh, really attempting to be attuned to you and to how I'm, you know, making judgments or or reacting badly or saying foolish things or being ego-driven, whatever. So I'm always watching that, and I have all this background of training and, and self-watching, but I think the, the reference point changes from self-watching. So if you look at the history of uh, psychotherapy, while there was self-watching, all psychotherapy is related to your values. So if your psychotherapy value includes that you're superior to women, which much of the history of male-dominated psychotherapy includes, and that women are there for your entertainment on some level, and you can violate the boundaries. I'm just using that as a bad example, egregious, an egregious example then you're trapped in your value dilemma, right? So if you look at value dilemmas, you know, within the realm of self-examination, uh, I don't think self-examination is neutral. I think it's cultural. It's always expanding. So, you know, we're looking at our prejudices all the time, and we're thick with judgments and prejudices that are imposed upon us. You know, we, we you know, we're just going through uh lgbtq kinds of consciousness that you know haven't existed before and look at the oppression of, of gay men and women uh things of that sort where you know there was a our psychotherapeutic value was you change someone from being queer to being straight that that was a value you know so these are egregious examples but yeah. they're there throughout so our unconscious conscious is a cultural function as well. So to the best extent we can to get free of those notions, to watch judgment. We're judgment factories. We make judgments every minute, every second. You know, we look at someone walking down the block, too fat, too tall, too thin, too ugly, not for us. You know, you make, you're doing calls all the time. Part of that's animal and just assessing the environment and part of that is cultural and and being affected by prejudice so in in the ability to get free of that you know there's a lot of learning to do a lot of self-examination so uh, being a therapist for 50 years plus I have 
that constant experience of watching. But the relationship going back to the stuff of abandoning, trying to instantly get rid of uh, my attachment in the moment, like my attachment in the moment is could be, am I doing a good interview? Am I talking too much? Is the guy listening? Is this going to be relevant? You know, am I going on? Am I being clear? There are all of those things that are being watched, but at the same time, I don't want to be in too much relationship to those things. I want to be in, I'm comfortable, I'm clear, I'm doing my best job, I'm, I'm trying to articulate uh, what he's interested in <clears throat> and what I think is interesting. How, how do you, how do you, that's a powerful point by the way and I completely resonate with what you're saying. How do you, how do you sort of manage that then? So see if them, because I'll just describe the process for me and something that I've been playing with a lot in my life lately. When you were speaking before about the judgment aspect of say when you walk down the street and sort of you have that animalistic nature like you said with inside yourself and you have these contradictory forces within yourself that's sort of pulling you on many different levels and there's a practice that i try to do is, is because i feel that sort of that impulse within to within myself to judge sure. so i try to a process that i try to do is, is i try to i try to sort of analyze allow that in my mind analyze it for a second but try and sort of not allow the not allow the sort of the the thought to sort of run over myself, but sort of just take a step back, analyze the thought itself, and see see what um see what are the implications are, and if I if I sort of completely accepted it, and I just wanted to basically understand of how do you, have you got a similar process where you try and sort of get I more self centered? Yeah, I, I think that's a good description of my process. That we're brothers in that process. So I go down the street. So like I'm, I'm struggling with fat prejudice. Not that I'm skinny, but I, I have a lot of fat prejudice, and our society has a lot of fat prejudice. So I look at people and I say, "Oh, that person's really fat," and I dismiss them, right? Because it's a dismissive thing, right? Um, you can do that with anorexia. You can say, "Oh, that woman, she's ninety pounds." I wonder. I wonder what her relationship to food is. So you, you, you. I don't want to be fat prejudiced. That is, I don't think as a physician being obese is a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. But I don't want to judge a person by that. I don't know their trauma, their history. I, I just don't want to dismiss people, right? So in that moment-to-moment thing, when I'm conscious, I'm not always conscious of the judgments that are flowing. When I try try to be conscious and come up with it, I'm going to say, "Well, why why are you so prejudiced against fat? What's I mean? What's the point? They're human beings. Why are you dismissing them?" So, in the process of democratization, and I think that's really the essential political process, is a a, a notion of non prejudiced equality in the world, which is probably the best thing one can do to to get to a world that's better uh, because most of what we hear politically is prejudice and negativity and you know greed and for me so in the process of wanting to not be negative to people because why why am i being negative what's, have you, have you what's ever, the point have you ever questioned where that's coming from because something oh, that all the time yeah something that i've questioned is is that the notion that is that it ask, when i'm when i'm doing that process see i judge somebody I'm trying to ask myself the question, am I noticing an as- a deeper aspect within myself that maybe I'm fearful of 
or some sort of sure. maybe trauma that's attached to me sure. in herself. That's great work, Dan. Yeah, I agree. So I'm looking at that, but I'm also looking at cultural prejudices because a lot of that stuff is inculcated. You know, the classic one of the black dude walking down the street and you change sides of the street because you think they're a violent human being that's going to kill you, right? That one is so common in our culture, and that's prejudice. So and think about the person who's living under that thrall, the black guy who's walking down the street thinking they think I'm going to kill them, or, you know, or they're avoiding me, or there's a prejudice. I mean, it's so reciprocal in its, uh, in its destructiveness to, to human beings. So yes, I think there are both. You have to look at the cultural aspect because we're embedded, and the personal aspect. But the personal aspect is also cultural. Mm-hmm. So how did I get there? What were the prejudices in my family I was brought up with? What were my experiences that tend to take me there? And I, I, I want to bring this to psychedelics if you, yeah, do, when you're ready. Let's do it. Go ahead. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, I started in uh, the psychedelic world as a young person. I was in medical school in uh, 1964. I was 20, <clears throat> we were in New York, and a small group of us were breaking free of McCarthyism, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, we uh, got hold of some acid, we didn't know what we were doing, and we dropped acid, and uh, and we didn't know what we were doing, or what was going to happen, we had no reference points, and it was a very powerful, mind-changing experience. I've never had a great <clears throat> relationship with LSD. It's always been. Uh, let me have a sip. No, go ahead. <clears throat> it's um, <clears throat> always been a bit troublesome to me. I don't like how long it lasts, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but I've also learned from it. And then I, uh, in a few months later, uh, had my first marijuana experience. And for me, as a very, I was a very self-conscious, very good boy, very awkward. Uh, marijuana opened the doors of my uh, sensual life in a lot of ways, and uh, was probably for me the most valuable kind of uh, uh, medicine I I ever took. Uh, and I've always had a good relationship with it, except for one period. I lost my oldest son to leukemia when he was. Uh, near 17 and for quite a while I couldn't smoke without feeling uh, extremely anxious or paranoid but that changed so uh, can I could sorry jump in could I quickly ask you why is why is it in particular is it marijuana why is it cannabis that sort of because just I just quickly give a bit of context of an experience that I've had recently um, I had a very sort of a very profound experience that's still permeating through myself now and this obviously it was through cannabis itself and I haven't really come across many encounters where people have had with the with the medicine itself, cannabis. I haven't had many people who's come um, who's actually sort of spoke about cannabis being a medicine that can be that profound. I have. Yeah. So throughout my life, I've um, 
had wonderful experiences with cannabis and bad ones. I'm a, I've been a member of Society of Cannabis Clinicians and active until everything went legal in the States and it became very commercial. But um, about 40% of people have bad experiences with cannabis. They go comatose or they get paranoid. But amongst the people who have good ones, um, I've seen enormous changes. So the change, I, I see cannabis as a hallucinogen. For me, I, I have a very powerful a psychedelic experience with cannabis. Uh-huh. And it's taught me a lot about my visual access, but it's also always been an awakening, not that all my good, all my thoughts on cannabis turn out to be good the next day, and I can't work on it. I've never been a wake-and-bake guy. I don't like to see dependency on any substances. Too many people are just stuffing uh, uh, cannabis down their down their noses, and I think that's not a good practice. Get queer. Use cannabis as a tool. Use cannabis uh, for experience, enlightenment, pleasure. But cannabis always, to me, was a, a pleasure uh, medicine, great for sex, so uh, great for sensuality, enabled me to dance without self-consciousness, and enabled me to enjoy conviviality with friends. So I've always uh, seen it as a social, but personally it's been uh, a deep kind of uh, uh, psychedelic for me. And as I get old, cannabis is easy. Everything else gets hard. Have you ever had an experience on it where, because I'm trying to sort of, I'm trying to use you as sort of trying to understand my own psychology because these are questions that I have within myself and um, I mean just to quickly paint a big picture because I'm still trying to gain a lot of clarity on actually what was really going on in the session that I had and um, basically just to give you a bit of context I think the listeners have heard this many times so I'll not go fully into it but the the aspect that I would love to see if you have an insight on is so in this experience was with one of my best friends and we know each other's deep psychology on a very sort of integrated level because we've been friends for a long time. We tell each other all our deepest sort of um, fears, our things that we hold inside of ourselves. And me and my friend had this experience which was like an integrated sort of integrated interdimensional meeting of our higher selves. Wonderful. Where my higher self was was confined through his body and his higher self was confined through me. Sure. And we're working sort of as healers sure. towards each other. Sure. And have you ever come across that before? Oh, oh sure. Oh, wow. And uh, and I have a men's group uh, that's been going. Last night I wasn't there. It's uh, east or west coast. I missed my 20th anniversary of my men's group, which has had met every month, once a month, for 240 times without a break. Not that we were there, all there all the time. But we have an experience of group mind. And that kind of communion you're talking about, it also occurs with uh, tantric sex. There are all kinds of ways in which there's a kind of loss of the boundaries of self and a a larger sense of self and a sense of knowing the other in a much deeper way and them knowing you. And it, it can be very pleasant. Sometimes people get very frightened by that. One of the cannabis sources of paranoia is that people know my thoughts or they're getting too close or the intimacy is too strong. But that kind of uh, loving interreaction, it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, for me, with women, that was always one of the great experiences of, of, uh, of cannabis was 
it's not just about sexual, it's about the intermingling of minds within a, a loving Love making kind of context. You know the, the you know that at the essence of what that it, what it shows you. I mean, in in that that certain experience of within my own self, I recognised. I mean, with it, like I said, it was sort of a our both higher selves were sort of interconnecting in a way that was far beyond sort of um, this one dimensional reality that we live in now. It was on a, a, f- yeah, a far sure. advanced level, sort of yeah. energetically or spiritually healing each other, whatever word or t- term you want to put on it. But do you have you do you think that's a, I would love to know if that suggests to you that do, I mean do we have that ability all the time but it's within this one dimensional sort of um, confinement that we're in it's 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 sort yes, of yes I think we have the becomes, ability all the time but we're also much more in our defensive structures and and you know when you think about substances they both widen us so their mind manifesting in the psychedelic sense. But they're always narrowing too. So if you really think about the experiences you might have on anything, ecstasy, marijuana, they they tend to reduce the the size of mind while expanding the size of mind. You know, so you it's an interesting. It's not a contradiction. It's a it's a function of medicine. So um, you know, in your clear. In your clarity, I think you're the most connected you can be. But in the uh, experience of various substances, depending on how they affect you or or afflict you, there is this heightened sense of communion and connection. And that's a lot of why, you know, for instance, Carl Harris's paper reporting on his interview structure with people, why they feel more progressive politically, etc. There's a sense of connection that good substance work brings to people, uh, like what you're describing. Did, have you, I mean, have you, is that why you've sort of, um, within the work that you do, have you um, sort of, is that why you've sort of adopted it within your sort of, your um, your approaches to the way you sort of um, help people and things? Well, I, I started to tell you my... deeper levels. Yeah, I started telling you my history, so... In 1983, I met Sasha Shulgin, and uh, it was the towards the very beginning of the MDMA uh, kind of experience that we were doing. I was doing psychotherapy, I was running a hospital, and I was always looking for tools, and I've never been uh, a 50-minute hour orthodox, uh, dogmatic, school-ridden kind of person. I've always looked for how do I expand consciousness, and what are the values of the kind of teachings that I'm getting and how are there methods that really open the doors of people's consciousness and to themselves and to others. So so to me, I'm a 60s person, so I'm a 60s radical, so I'm always looking at community as well and how do you build community. So it's always about connection as well as the quality of my internal Consciousness and MDMA in the legal period, we did hundreds and hundreds of couples and depressed people. And I would say what we know now about MDMA is the same as what we know about, knew about MDMA back then. We had vast experience with it. And I try to keep it legal. I was part of the crowd of keeping it legal. It was a great psychotherapeutic tool. And uh, outside of the strictures of the FDA approval process, 
that's going on for MDMA now, of which I've been a part. I ran a phase two map study in the, with MDMA and life-threatening illness that we concluded two years ago. Um, within the open, open structures we were able to concoct during the legal period, which really was about 82 to 80, end of 85, uh, the revolution in psychotherapy occurred. So uh, because MDMA allows you to work consciously with people uh, in a, a reflective state and in an interactive state, it took the, uh, the world of orthodox psychotherapy, the 50-minute or 45-minute hour, into a six-hour experience in which the exposure of the therapist to the patient was much greater, in which the interaction was much deeper, in which uh, the sense of time and availability shifted completely for therapists. So for me, it was a wonderful opportunity to do more rapid work, more deeper work, more satisfying work, uh, and and I love doing it. And those of us who came out of that period are still kind of at the base of the structures that have that are in being now to explore psychedelics. Like I was a founder of Hefter, that came out of Esalen and Rick and I knew each other back in the mid '80s. Stan Graf, the characters that are now getting old or dying. We just lost uh, Ralph Metzner. We just lost Claudio Nerano. Those characters, all of us were together in this kind of ethos of uh, uh, ex exploration of psychotherapy in two ways, the eyes closed, uh, LSD kind of way, and the more therapeutic interactional way, which I've always loved. So then it went underground, uh, and I continued my work in my way. And then... Uh, in my men's group, I began working. We started as an ayahuasca group. We began working with ketamine. And I had had a profound experience with ketamine in 1990, kind of an overdose. But because ketamine is such a, an extraordinary um, uh, ego-dissolving substance, you leave your body, and in your bodilessness, you're free to roam as an energy kind of experience. So... There I was thinking I was dead and I was experiencing death and I was having this amazing, colorful, I still see the pictures, it's a long time, you know, it's 29 years or so. Uh, I, I could see the nature of my being as an energy body. And some of that was influenced by Castaneda who uh, wrote about and described things that didn't quite correspond, but hints as to the nature of our of our essence as energy and uh, and uh, uh, non-corporeal uh, and fluent and part of a world of uh, of of energy in the universe. So that that was a, an amazing experience. I didn't do it again. It was extremely powerful. I got sick for three days. Of course, I they gave me too much, my buddies, and then we began to do it again. And then. Uh, I could see the therapeutic benefit of it. And so, because it's legal, it's the only legal psychedelic, I could bring it into a therapeutic practice, which I've been doing and refining now for about five years. And, and I think we have a really wonderful set of protocols 
and now we just published a paper on 235 uh, patients within our, uh, our, our group of uh, three uh, therapists who we've trained, and we're doing a lot of training. We've trained now 194 practitioners over four-day ketamine experiential programs. By the year's end, we'll have trained 260. So we're trying to bring ketamine-assisted psychotherapy into the world as a base for psychedelic psychotherapy, not because it's the only substance, yeah. but it has its own tremendous merit. Could I just sure. touch on something because I'll sure, forget because sure. a powerful sure, end point. Sure. I'm just going to quickly check the time. I'm sure we should be all right. Oh, gonna... yeah. Time is free. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're completely fine. We're completely fine. Um, yeah, when you before when you were describing the experience that you had of the blue light, I mean, I've had that experience on many different occasions. I've had many speakers on the podcast who's also experienced that blue light, blue, blue light, sorry. And as you said, many teachers of the past have all sort of have all spoke that, like you said, Carlos Castaneda, I've read one of his books as well, I think one of the journeys he was doing with the... Journey to Ixtlan. After, yeah, I think that one, he was explaining that about the blue light. Do you think, um, do you think sometimes this, the, the knowledge is too much for the physical body? Because when I've had, when I had the experience with sort of that cannabis experience, I experienced the blue light myself, and it felt like the experience was too much for this, for this physical vessel. Does that make sense? No, because here you are. Ah, oh, yeah, good point. So if you if it was too much, it would have exploded. Yeah, so people just, have just... a fear that they're going too far, and they can't recover. But we call people psychonauts in our ketamine work because we work with naive people who are coming for depression, have had no psychedelic experience, and we're slowly but surely bringing them into a very powerful psychedelic realm. And most people are afraid of their minds, and they worry, have I gone too far? Is this too much for me? Will I explode into psychosis and things like that? So, but here you are. Yeah, do you, so do you think that the whatever's behind this thing, whatever you want to call it, the intelligence or the thing that it, the thing that it puts the energy force whatever it is do you think it just it has a form of um, knowledge where it knows how much sort of to give you at the right time that's a little deterministic for my taste but you can have it if you want i don't i don't uh, i don't know I'm asking i don't you. see you it know that way I, <laughs> no i don't know more than you you know what you know so i i mean i think i think that's just just a bit too deterministic so you know people often say i got what i when I was looking for, but didn't know I was looking for it. So, oh, you know, you know those kind of expressions that um, things are unpredictable in this world. The next minute we could have an earthquake, and did we look for that? You know, it's like no. I think I think what you're looking at is how far did I go? How do I integrate my experience? And in good set and setting, which we do our best to provide, we're trying to help people integrate a, a different notion of themselves. So we treat a lot of people who come in with depression or PTSD or attachment issues from childhood. And uh, we also give people experiences. But if when we're treating people, which we do in great volume, uh, we're, we're trying to, ex we're giving them a break. So you, you can ask why does ketamine work so well, for example. Uh, for depression. Well, you're giving people a break from their ordinary mind and in their 
transition into other states of mind, which was very powerful, depending on dosage, they're free of their ordinary concerns. They're not depressed within the ketamine space. And so they come out of it having a recognition of their lack of depression, their fluidity, their flexibility, and that, for instance, depression is not inevitable. People go back to being themselves. We call that the rubber band effect. But we're trying to help ourselves and others initiate a different kind of sense of self. So within the uh, lysis of ordinary mind that ketamine produces, to talk about this as a particular substance available to us, um, there's a thing I call the guide. So a ketamine experience you're having uh, in a powerful one, pure visual sensation amplified by some relationship to sound. You always have to do music. So you're, you're traveling in realms that feel total, that they're not connected to this realm. So the difficulty uh, for most people is transitioning into another reality that seems complete and you don't have the ability to reference it back to your usual life. And in that, it feels often like I'm trapped or this is it. Can I tolerate living in this kind of realm? Have I killed myself? Have I gone too far? So there's this ex experience of without words of a visual stream and connected to to music, etc., and at the same time, a commentator, that's our guide uh, that we call it, and a sense of balance. So we're trying to look at the deep way in which, like we were talking about before of non-attachment, that the ketamine experience really develops a sense of non-attachment, what it's about, fluidity, liberated mind, and we try and help people integrate that so they can use that and have a feeling sense of balance. When am I in balance? What takes me out of balance? Drinking too much, I lose my balance. Getting too anxious, I lose my balance. And restoration to that kind of a fluid relationship to a, the moving sense of, of the guide and balance. That's where I'm, a, I'm moving with my uh, explication and my attempts at integration with it. Yeah, cool. I think we'll leave it there. I th thank you so much. Honestly, mind blown. Okay, absolutely well, thank you. mind blown. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. As you can tell, I'm still recording on my mobile phone. Recording an outro now as I'm walking down the mountain. It's not me being lazy. I have brought my microphone recordings with us because I'm going to be recording and observe my thoughts when I'm here as well. But I thought, why not? Let's be a bit raw, a bit raw and ragged, and let's record this one on my mobile phone. So now I'm, after recording the intro, I'm now heading back down the mountain now. I've got about a 30, 40 minute walk. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk for that long. <laughs> but anyway, just want to say thank you so much for tuning in the podcast and tuning in the podcast every single week it really means a lot that was a really cool conversation and philip really did blow my mind when he was when he gave the example of when i asked him the question when we have these um, experiences of the mystical or the woo whatever you want to call them can it ever be too much for our physical body and he said the answer that he said was is no because you're here and it really is true I think we all do get a sense whatever you do whether you're having a deep meditation session you're doing a deep psychedelic session or whatever whatever else comes up in your life I do get a sense that 
there is maybe sort of some intelligence that permeates through the universe and it does sort of protect you in ways it sort of does sort of just like ayahuasca does in a way it's sort of the mother character mothers you and protects you and doesn't give you too much so maybe there is some sort of divine intelligence that is guiding us through all our day-to-day lives i think we all feel it with our intuition our intuition tells us to do one thing or thing or another to do this today to do that today and i think it's about us as people's really trying to learn how to listen to that and not numb it out i think in our daily lives we have a choice between not listening to it and actually listening to it and i do get a sense and i know in my life the more that i've listened to me gut and listened to me intuition the more i've made i've made i've never regretted it and i've made some great decisions so anyway that's enough of me rambling thanks so much for tuning in if you can find it in your heart as always support the podcast through the patreon page also have a one-off donation option and if you can sign up for the ascend podcast retreat email opt-in so you can know about it as soon as it goes live within the next couple of weeks i love you all people and wherever you are in the world have an amazing day peace out And I forgot to mention as well, guys, as always, I'll play the podcast out with a little song. I'm not sure what what song I'm going to play at the end of this. Maybe I'll play something that's traditional Spanish music. Maybe. Let's see. I'll be surprised anyway, guys. So enjoy this song, whatever it is. Peace out. This one right here is for the people. The chimpanzee, them are make big money. This is how the media pillages. On TV, the picture is savages and villages. And the scientists still can't explain the pyramids. Huh. Evangelists making a living on the videos of ribs of the little kids. Stereotyping the image of the images. And this is what the image is. You buy a car key pants, and all of a sudden you are say Indiana Jones. And I tip out the gold and tip out the scrolls and even the bird bones. Some of the worst paparazzis I've ever seen and I've ever known. Put the words on this place so the world can see and that's all that will ever show So the ones in the west will never move east and feel like it be a town Get tricked by the beast but the way them are gonna flee when the monster is fully grown Salamonic lineage where them still can defeat and them could have never clown My spiritual DNA that prints in my soul and I will forever own love
get cut Wanna heal them broken bones in the bush with the wet mud Can you re-science? Can you restart? Can you make peace? Can you fight war? Can you milk cows? Even though you drive cars uh, Can you survive against all odds now? And was it a lightning storm that gave birth to the earth and then dinosaurs were born? Who made up words? Who made up numbers? And what kind of spell is mankind under? Everything on the planet we preserve and can it. Microwave it and try it, no matter what we'll survive it. What's you? What's man? What's human? Anything along the land we consuming. Eating, deleting, ruin. Trying to get paper. Gotta have land, gotta have acres. So I can sit back like Jack Nicholson, watch play the game like the Lakers. In a world full of 52 fakers, gypsies, seances, mystical prayers. You superstitious, throw so over your shoulders, make a wish for the day, cuz. Like somebody got a doll of me, sticking needles in my artery. But I can't feel it. Sometimes it's like part of me, but I got a real big spirit. A fearless, a fearless. Don't you try to grab hold of my soul. It's like a military soldier since seven years old. I held real dead bodies in my arms. Felt their body turn cold. Oh, why are we born in the first place if this is how we gotta go? Dang. Savali. 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 Savali.